I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Maya Angelou. Hey, friends and family, welcome to another episode of Intentional Living and Leadership with me, your host, Cal Walters. Thank you so, so much for spending some time with this community today. I hope that this podcast can inspire you on your journey to live a more intentional life and be a more effective leader. If you subscribe to this podcast, you will get a new episode every other Tuesday. And thank you to all of you who continue to share this podcast on social media. Thank you to everyone that has gone to Apple Podcasts and left a rating or a review. That means so much to me and it helps us make a wider impact on more people and it helps us gain more exposure. In fact, I just found out that this podcast in the past week was ranked in the top 30 leadership podcast on the internet by Feedspot. And as this podcast continues to grow, we're actually looking for help in managing the growth. Right now, we are actively seeking and taking applications for an intern to work on this show. So if you're interested or you know someone that might be interested, please send me a message and we will get you the application. We're looking for someone who's passionate about leadership and helping other people grow. This person will get to learn the ins and outs of starting and growing a podcast and get to interact with amazing leaders from around the world. So please let me know. Today, I am so excited to share with you an interview with Susan Packard, the co-founder and former COO of HGTV. Susan is incredibly inspiring. She's filled with incredible insights on life and leadership, and she's especially passionate about empowering women leaders. Susan is also an author of two outstanding books, New Rules of the Game and Fully Human and New Rules of the Game. She writes to help women navigate and lead in the workplace. And then in her second book, Fully Human, she talks about the three steps to emotional fitness, offering really a fresh new perspective on emotional intelligence. I really think you're going to love the insights that Susan shares on this episode. For show notes, Susan's full bio and links to Susan's book, you can go to my website, calwalters.me. Friends, sit back and enjoy this interview with the inspiring Susan Packard. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Cal. Glad to be here. It's so neat to sit down with you, the co-founder of HGTV, the former COO, now author of your second book. So I'm excited to to dig into all of that. Uh, I'd like to start by asking you though, Susan, about your background and what, tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up for you, your family, and then what led you to business and corporate America? Yeah. Um, so I was the third of four kids and both my parents were first generation, one Italian, one Greek. So, and we lived on a street with all of our family, all my relatives were on our same street. So, um, a lot of people can't relate to that, but actually it was, it was pretty lovely. That Um, sounds fun. My grandparents were two doors down and yeah, so it was really lovely. And, um, my older sisters were very um, sort of larger than life personalities. So when I came along as a third, I, I was a very quiet kid and I was a somewhat introspective kid. And so um, I kind of 
felt like I got a little lost in the shuffle, but, you know, I sort of made my way through and uh, played with the kids on the street and I loved to play games and um, I loved competition. So one thing led to another and I ended up um, and my first job was in business. Uh, I got a degree and an advanced degree and um, started in re consumer research. And from there, I ended up in um, cable television programming, which was just a nascent industry starting out. Yeah. And I rode that, wa that wave through my whole career. It was fantastic. It was just really exciting. So how did you end up going into cable TV? Was that a a, a process or was that just a moment where an opportunity came before you and you jumped on it? Yeah. And I will say that, um, for your listeners, there is as much, um, luck and, um, fortuitous nature to one's career as there is planning and analysis. Um, I was working in consumer research and it truthfully was so boring I was writing these questionnaires and I was calling people and asking them about their deodorant habits and things like that. I mean, it was just boring. And a friend of mine was at HBO and um, she said, we are hiring, we are staffing, you know, do you have any interest in coming? And I thought, hmm, movies, television, you know, um, versus writing questionnaires. So I, I said, absolutely. So I just... I moved to Chicago and I started um, at HBO. Wow. And so how long after that did you get involved with HGTV? It was another, another 14 years. So I was at HBO for seven or eight years. Um, again, it was the powerhouse during that time. It still is a powerhouse as far as media brands go. Um, and then I went over to NBC they were starting up a cable division. And so I was on the ground floor of CNBC and MSNBC. And then from there, uh, I was recruited to go to uh, Home and Garden. I was the second employee. The first employee was Ken Lowe. It was his idea. And he called me and then we built the team. What was that like specifically being a woman in that industry at that time? Well, um, I would say that... Um, I had a reputation for um, honesty and um, trust, and I think those things went a long way. Um, I didn't; it really didn't matter if you were male or female, but I think those were qualities that my clients were always looking for. Um, and you know, it was um, HGTV was—you would think the progression that it would have been. Ease gotten easier and easier, but at HGT when we when I was pitching HGTV, um, one of the biggest clients said, "Ah, oh, that's just a chick channel," you know. Yeah. And if I, if I had had, you know, sports, um, his eyes would have lit up, and you know. And so, it was hard in the very beginning um, with HGTV with a almost one hundred percent male audience um, to pitch to, but. Over time, they had trust that um, I had come from other places where we built successful businesses together. And so, you know, the importance of building client relationships throughout your whole career um, would be a message that I would give to your viewers too, or your listeners too. Sorry, television. No, it's okay. 
what would you say to the women that are out there that are listening who are trying to navigate corporate America or really any industry? What advice do you give to women when they come to you and, and ask and are interested in your journey and some of the insights that you have, have gained over that journey? Well, um, it's really why I wrote the first book, New Rules of the Game. And I lay out 10 strategies for women. It's called New Rules of the Game, 10 Strategies for Women in the Workplace. And I lay out um, 10 important things for them to think about when they are um, navigating corporate America. And I had the unusual circumstance of being an entrepreneur. So I was in corporate America, but I was building businesses on the ground floor. Um, you know, new divisions, new brands. So it was the best of both worlds. Um, and, but it also helps me to relate to whether women are in, um, whether they're entrepreneurs or whether they're in corporate America, because it was really a hybrid of both. And it really doesn't matter. I mean, if you're running your own business, that's its own set of um, strategies and challenges. But if you're in corporate America, um, that's really what the book is about. And I, I suggest you know, very, like, there are skills that are important, like understanding finance somewhat, you don't, unless you, you know, if you're not going to be a CFO, you don't have to be uh, an expert, but understanding, being able to read a, read a spreadsheet and things like that. Um, and line work, doing something that has to do with revenue and earning revenue is helpful. Things like that, um, how you actually communicate as a woman, especially in a man's world. Um, I tell, um, in the book, I tell kind of a funny story that uh, Mackenzie did some research and they found that men speak an average of 7,000 words a day and women speak an average of 21,000 words a day. And so we wonder why we have these communication gaps, you know, when we're trying to get things done and be efficient. And so it's just those kinds of things that I lay out in the book that I hope are helpful little nuggets um, as they're navigating their way. What did you find? What's the, especially for a guy who obviously don't know what it's like to be a woman in the workforce, but what is some of maybe the harder parts of that? Have you found that there are struggles that guys need to know about for women in the workplace? Well, yeah. I mean, and most recently um, with Me Too, what happened is there was a lot of um, feedback from male executives that they didn't want to sponsor women anymore. They didn't want to be um, around women um, traveling. Um, so essentially cutting off opportunities for women because of women trying to express um, a concern that they have had for a lot of years in the workplace. So that's a real, that has become a double-edged sword in some organizations. And you know, this gets back to, it really ends up about who the leader is. It all starts with whoever the leader is and the people they bring in. And um, those people set the tone and model for that organization and they create the culture. And they can recreate a culture, you know, depending upon what might be needed there. But the, I, I um, have several, on purpose, I put several men, white men over 60 in my book uh, and, and, and interviewed them because they were examples of, you know, it's the stereotype that um, older, you know, the, that older white men are rigid 
Um, but the fact is, every organization, you're going to have some of that at every level. And for women, too. You know, I mean, one of the biggest issues for, for women is being too rigid. Um, but that's why I have Paul Pullman from Unilever in the book. And I had Yarrow Moan from um, National Public Radio. And I mean, there's a number of them that um, are great leaders. And we can learn from men as well as women, you know, about leadership. I would imagine, and, and correct me if, if you don't agree with us, or just or let me know if you don't agree with us. I, is there pressure for women to feel like they can do it all? I, I think I, I read somewhere where you talked about, especially working at HGTV, uh, you acknowledge that you, you can't do it all. Or at least, you know, you're not necessarily able to be this high-powered executive who comes home and makes these incredible meals and simultaneously does DIY projects. You know, it, that, is, yeah. that, is that a facade that you can do it all, in your opinion? Yeah, um, you prioritize different things depending upon the chapter of your life. And um, if you're raising kids, that's its own chapter. And that, at least in my view, is the priority. So, you know, you need to make sure that your kids are safe, that your kids are well taken care of if you're traveling or whatever the case may be. Um, you need to have your routines with your kids. Um, and, um, but then your kids get older. And, you know, then you can sort of recreate and rewire yourself and do all kinds of new things um, in career. But, um, yeah, I, the whole thing about, and I, I, I tell another story in one of my books about um, Ken, my, the, who hired me, and I was traveling a lot, and he knew I didn't want to be, um, we had visitors all the time because people were wondering how how is this small little idea and these the small team beans arc have they become so successful so um we would have all these visitors in and we'd have dinners and you know he knew that when i was in town i was home i needed to be home it was important for me to be home and so but one day we had had the dinner and and i said what do you tell what do you tell people? Do you, do you even mention it? You know, and he says, the people ask where my chief operating officer is. I say, she's home with her family. And if they have an issue with that, tough, you know, um, but he was, he, he didn't have any kids of his own, but he was very supportive of women in our organization. It was one of the reasons that I joined because I knew that about him. I love that. I love how as the leader, he's getting a sense of the people on his team, what they need, and he's creating the space for them to recharge He's giving them permission to say no, as opposed to feeling that pressure that you need to be at everything and, and be all things right. to all people. What a great example of yeah. trust and great leadership of setting boundaries. Yeah, he was a phenomenal leader and mentor. I, I wanted to see, ask Susan if you would share your story. Uh, you, you sent me an article where you uh, had come home, you were working, I think you were in, I believe you were in your 40s. And your husband at some point said to you, we're not your staff or something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that and what that led you to do and some of the revelations that came out of that. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned earlier about being rigid and when you're overworked and when you are not emotionally fit, which maybe we can talk about that on another podcast, but that's <laughs> um, really, I have found that that is, perhaps the most important thing when you show up to work to be emotionally fit. But if you're not, 
And, and when you are, that means that you are in a place of steadiness and peace of mind and you're agile and you can deal with change and you can deal with a lot of things. Um, I had become overwhelmed with um, what was going on in our, at HGTV because it was so big and no one expected it to be as big. And you'd think, oh my God, that's a first world problem. And it is, but um, as chief operating officer, getting your arms around that constantly uh, was a challenge for me. Um, so I became very rigid. And um, one night I came home and I guess I'd been doing this and I didn't even realize it, but my husband told me that I was doing this. But one night I came home and I said, I didn't even say hello to them. You know, I said, have you done your homework? Have you taken your shower? Have you had your dinner? And, and my husband, Bill, looked at me and said, we're not your staff. And it was one of those um, <laughs> iconic moments that I'll never forget because it forced me in a good way to really look at my life and to, um, you know, I, when I speak to leaders now, I talk about the importance of living an examined life. Hmm. It might be the most important thing you do, um, which really requires sort of rigorous self-assessment on an ongoing basis to see, you know, to really revisit your thoughts, your beliefs, uh, what's keeping you stuck, all of those things. And, um, and it was a moment for me to do that. I was also, I, in doing that and taking some moment of, some time with, in self-reflection, I saw that I was drinking too much um, as a way to um, um, soothe all the stress in the evenings. I mean, I never had any, um, consequences from it but it was something that was becoming too much of a habit so all of those things went into really writing my second book um, about the importance of emotional fitness which is sort of the inner journey of the leader and it's as important if not more important than the outer uh, work you do yeah Susan I think that also highlights going back to what you said at the beginning that often it's not failure that can lead to some of these challenges. Sometimes it's success. Sometimes as uh, Greg McEwen would say, it's this success paradox. It's you get more and more options as you grow and that leads to more stress and more demands. Uh, and I love, I love that example of, of being living an examined life. What do you have any habits or routines that you go to, to, to live an examined life? Yeah. Um, you know, I do, uh, I meditate every morning and that's really powerful for me. I can't even imagine starting the day without sitting 20 minutes um, in the practice. I, I, it's called centering prayers. That's, that's the practice I do. Okay. But there's over 20 forms of meditation. Um, is that the first thing you do when you, I'm just curious, you, first you wake thing I up. Do is, uh, first thing I do is I have a half a cup of coffee. Okay. And then I roll into meditation. <laughs> and in fact, I did a workshop on this recently on Centering Prayer, and there were like 250 people, and they were all asking these crazy, insightful questions. And one of them said, why do you only have half a cup? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> why? Why do you? And I actually, had a, I have an answer to that, which is, I don't want my mind to be so overstemmed. Hmm. I really like to have my mind be more in a place of um, rest. You know, and I love coffee. I drink it all day. But um, 
But when I have my meditation, I really want to be in a place where I can be grounded and centered. So, um, so that's an important practice. Um, you know, I have one or two friends who um, I know I can always, they're like my go-tos for anything going on that may not be, um, if I'm feeling like I'm not in alignment, mm-hmm. you know, and that's another part of living an examined life is you get to a place where you can actually feel these things, you know, it, it, and it's almost like muscle memory. It's okay. There's something not quite right. And having somebody you can talk to. And it's another thing I say when I talk to leaders, you need to have, whether it's a therapist, a coach, a priest, a best friend, I don't mm-hmm. care who it is. Someone else can help you um, instead of you always being so self-reliant, you know, having someone else to trust that can help you that only has your back um, is really important. Would you be willing to give an example of when you felt out of alignment or just kind of a moment when you might pick up the phone and call these friends? Yeah. um, Well, there, there was, um, I think a pretty good example of me being out of alignment when we were building HGTV and um, I had in the course of 28 days, my sister and mom die both unexpectedly. Oh man. And um, about a, I think it was two weeks after that we had a meeting, a company wide all hands meeting to launch a new, a new business. And it was, uh, we were off off site. So I drove, so I went First of all, I went, and so I drove two hours. Um, I didn't say a word. I didn't contribute anything. I didn't hear anything they said, and I got back in my car and I drove home. And I realized after. I mean, I talk. I call. I talked to a friend about it because I knew that it just it didn't feel right at all. And but it was it was poor leadership um, to model when you're in the middle of deep grief to try to show up in an, you just show up in a very artificial way. Mm. And so um, that was poor modeling. And I'm really conscious of that as a leader. And I've always have been that the people that come after you are going to, they're your legacy. You know, you're not your own legacy. They're, they're what will be um, what your future is all about. And or what you're, if anybody talks uh, kindly about me in the future, it will be because of people that I've um, led. And yeah. and so, um, yeah, so that was an example of uh, a time when I was out of alignment. I was not emotionally fit. And, um, but you learn from every one of these experiences and they help you to grow and, and to gain more um, emotional maturity. I'd like to ask you about, you've mentioned it a couple of times and I, I'm just so curious, what is emotional fitness in your view? What does that look like? It's easier for me to discuss what it feels like, um, okay. but I, I, I it, so it feels like steadiness, peace of mind and joy. Okay. Um, and you don't have joy every day in, in, a, in a job, but you have it enough days that it's a practice where you keep coming back to it. Just like and, and I, the reason I call it emotional fitness is because just like physical fitness, it's a practice. You can't go, you don't go to the gym once and then all of a sudden you're, you know, fit. You have to keep that up. 
And the same is true with emotional fitness. Um, and I offer sort of three steps in the book, and I don't want this to sound like some sort of sales pitch for the book, but um, the first thing that you need to do is, will, is to be willing to, do the, to live the exam of life, to ask the hard questions of yourself, you know, that rigorous self-assessment, and to do it on an ongoing basis, to not be afraid of it. Um, and, you know, I've found in working with leaders that a lot of them would rather just dodge it you know, um, for any number of reasons. So, so it's willingness and then it's trust building. You know, how do you build trust with other people and how can you be trustworthy for them? So that's a whole dynamic and that's a, a step. And then the last part of it is what I call we principles, W-E principles. And that's how do you really lead your organization and your team? And um, <clears throat> you lead with hope as one, you lead with generosity, you know, and you lead, lead with moral courage. And all of those um, make up emotional fitness. And those are the, you know, the steps that you're constantly going back to to say, uh, I've constantly gone back to to say, okay, is this a morally courageous decision or not? You know, those kinds of moments. Is journaling a big part of you remaining emotionally fit? I've, I've heard you talk and I've read a little bit about your journaling practice. Right. Yeah, no, um, it's, I write every morning and whether I'm writing for a book or I'm, I, I don't so much journal as much as I write. Now I'm more writing, I'm writing op-ed pieces, blogs, um, essays, and some of this may become an another book I don't know yet but um but I write every day it is a it's a critically important outlet for me and you know whether that's this is right brain work so whether whether for you it's you know art or dancing or nature or hiking or you know all of those are right brain and it's important for leaders to be both left brain and right brain and you also mentioned generosity, and I've heard you talk about this great example of, of what you all did with that first million dollars at HGTV. Could you tell that story? I think it's just a fantastic example of how with that generosity mindset, you can put it into practice at an organization. Yeah, so um, about we were rolling into year four. And we could see in our projections that we were actually going to turn a profit, which for a startup business is one of those <laughs> moments where you, you have to look twice, and make sure your numbers are, are, are adding up right. But they were. And, um, and so we could see ourselves going into profitability. And, you know, we were in year four when it, an average network was year seven. Um, we wanted to make sure when double check and we did and everything was good. And um, <clears throat> so we decided that we wanted to give back the first million dollars in profit to our employees. So we put a um, plan together, try to keep it secret, like you know how that goes in organizations. But, <laughs> and, um, and what I love the most about it is the check you got was based entirely on how long you'd been with us. Hmm. So you, our assistants and our coordinators mostly got more than their, you know, their directors and VPs did. And, um, and we, you know, we excluded ourselves and, but, you know, that was a real moment, but I, you know, I also tell the story that 
when I see friends from the building days of HGTV and, I, and I'll say, okay, what was your favorite I, memory? And some will say, oh, the million dollar giveaway was a great, I, great memory. But as many will say, you know, you guys came to my dad's funeral. You guys showed up. And when they say that, it makes everything worth it. You know, it makes yeah. all those years of building um, this monster business uh, worth it. I love how you said too earlier that such a critical measure of a leader is what their people say about them or the way they view them after. I think so often as leaders, it's easy to get caught up in the mission or the numbers or you know, whatever you're trying to further, which is obviously important, but those people are what make up the organization. And I, I, to me, some of the best leaders are those who never lose sight of that fact that it's the people that have to come first. And that really, that legacy of leadership is one of the most, one of the best metrics of an effective leader uh, and I think that's a great example of that, Susan, is it's people giving you those little anecdotes of this is what I remember. I remember how you made me feel. I remember how you were there. You showed up. Uh, it wasn't about the million dollars or the money or that little increase. It was about that personal relationship. And I just think that's really important for us to keep in mind as, as we try to lead people, uh, that it's ultimately about the people. Yeah, and I'll just add to that, Cal, um, that my message today to leaders is really around the idea of res respect and civility. And the, 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 when you're building a culture or if you're recreating a culture, respect, civility, kindness, which is a word that no one ever wants to use in business, but your folks are looking, they want to believe in you. They come to work wanting to believe in you. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you talked about earlier. It's about trust. And, and you have those moments that really make or break whether someone's going to trust you. And, and it also goes to this concept of emotional intelligence, emotional fitness, that ability to, to feel, let's say, anger or frustration or impatience, but not take that out on the person, to, to collect yourself in that moment and choose kindness or choose right. patience as opposed to just reacting, which I know right. when I was in, when early in my leadership, I was very guilty of that. I would just kind of just do whatever I felt like doing instead of taking that moment to pause and think about the right way, like the next right step I should take, as opposed to just do whatever I felt like in the moment. Right. And when you think about your, the next generations that are coming behind you, you know, whether the axes are sort of sandwiched between the boomers who won't retire and the, and the wise, the millennials who are real technology savvy, then the wise want purpose and then the Zs, you know, there's a lot going on with the Zs. I do a fair amount of university work. And, um, and so every one of them has their own place from an emotional standpoint that you also need to plug into and at least appreciate, even yeah. if you can't identify with it. Yeah, and that's true. It, it shows you that each person is different and maybe motivated differently and you might have to approach. And it goes back to this concept of relationship building. It's all about the individual relationship and uh, approaching each person on their own terms. Uh, as we're wrapping up here, Susan, I would love to ask you if you have, what is your favorite parenting advice that you would give to people? 
I, <laughs> I, first of all, I would give me uh, a B minus. <laughs> so, so I, I don't know that you're, I'm the best person for you to ask that of. Um, but I would say mostly it's just to be present. And, um, and that may not mean you're physically there. But if you get a phone call from one of your kids and you're in a meeting, you, you know, you step out and you take it. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's just, a phys, it's just for, that, for them to know you are there for, and you're there for them and they come first. And, um, you know, it's a, jug, it's a juggling act. But um, at least as a working mom, I would say that that was really important to me. To, not, to never, I, one time, I'll try to uh, tell the story very quickly. I was in a board meeting and um, I got a phone call and the school said, your son's had an accident. And I, you know, I freaked out and they said, just, just come, please just come. And he's asking for you. And so, you know, I ran out of the board meeting. They said, he's all right, but he's asking for you. So I ran out of the board meeting. I drove like a maniac. And there he is at the end of the hallway. He's at this point, he's five, five, I think, five or six. And um, he had an accident of the type that required him, me to change his underwear. Yeah. <laughs> you get, you get, you I get got it. Yeah, I, I, I totally, I got a six-year-old. I understand. Okay. Yeah. You totally get it, right? So, um, and I, all I could do was say, oh, he asked for me. It's so cool that he wanted me to be the one he to be mom. here. To be, yeah, to be mom during that moment. So it doesn't really matter what it is. Yeah. Um, just to be there for them is important. Have you found that your meditation exercises helps you be more present? Because I often struggle with being present. In fact, today I was having some conversations, really important conversations at work. And I just found that I was just zoning out or just thinking about other things. What, what's helped you become more present with people? Yeah. And I would say it really is mostly that because I have been meditating for 10 years. I doubt you have. I'm How long not. have you been meditating? Yeah. I don't meditate. That's my yeah, problem. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, even you wouldn't, from an age standpoint, I would have guessed it wouldn't have been 10 <laughs> years. And I've done, and I've, and I've pretty much every day for 10 years. And I, you know, I, I don't want this to sound like it's such a strenuous thing to do that it takes that much practice, but you do get to, you do, once you do it enough, you can better um, control your, your focus and your attention and be present. I've heard a lot of people say that people that do uh, mindfulness exercises, people that do meditation. Uh, and I'm going to try that. I need to put that on my, my list of habits to create last question, Susan, as we're wrapping up, what do you want to be remembered for? Well, um, I think this whole notion of, um, living an examined life is important. And, uh, there's a lot that goes along with that. Uh, but we've talked about some of that. Uh, I think everyone ought to be going through that process uh, just on a, you know, on some sort of re regular basis. And then I do a lot of work with women. Um, you know, I, so my website is all about women leaders and um, I try to do what I can to help them uh, make their way. And I hope that if I, you know, if some woman, when I'm long gone says she taught me to be brave. I don't anything uh, like that. I will feel like um, it's been worth it. Well, you are an incredible leader 
and incredible example. Thank you for the work that you're putting out, the books that you're putting out. Thank you for spending some time with us today on the Intentional Living and Leadership thank podcast. You, and I wish you well, thank Susan. You. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you so much for, for meeting with me today. And good luck to you with the move and um, all of your changes. <laughs> thank you, Susan. Wow. Susan Packard, everyone. I have listened to this interview several times and each time I get something new out of it. I loved her stories about pivots in her life, the importance of self-awareness as a person and as a leader. She often says that leadership is an inside job and I completely agree. I also love the discussion about being emotionally fit and being fully present with the people that we interact with. And finally, her story about what they did with the first $1 million of profit at HGTV just shows what leadership is all about. Sure, leadership is about accomplishing the mission or the vision of your team and your organization, but remember that people are what matter most and people are the ones that allow a team or organization to accomplish that mission or vision. When people reflect back on you, when they talk about you as a leader, what will they say? Hopefully it will be like what Susan described. They will remember how you showed up, how you made them feel. That's the legacy of a great leader. So let's go today and be intentional. Remember that life is short. Let's go make it count.